Welcome, Tom Nelson with Brian Cat here again to talk about energy issues, I think, and whatever else you want to cover, Brian. I'm very glad to have you back again. I Thank love you. your first podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> Good. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to cover so much. I, I actually was quite quite pleased with myself. Sorry to say, I've tried to be modest, but the, the first six minute intro, introduction of how I got there was 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 great. I recommend it to anybody. <laughs> it was good stuff, yeah. Especially if you're an engineer and, and you do understand how things work, you know what the basic rules are, mm -hmm. uh, you'll understand immediately what I'm talking about. So I just wanted to say a few words, you know, for everybody rather than specialists or engineers, technical okay. people, about what this is about, uh, the business of energy and climate change. The business of, cl of climate change legislation is to make our energy more expensive and reduce its use. Now, if you think that is going to make life better for your children in the future, you really, really do need to take a check on what it means to reduce your energy use. What it means to reduce your energy use is to reverse the progress of the last century and go effectively, if you remove the use of fossil and nuclear and other intense energy sources, fossil and nuclear primarily, then effectively you're going back to about 1800, a bit before, and you're back to an agrarian feudal economy where people live rather short, brutal lives and only the rich have a good time, which is pretty much where the UN IPCC wants us to go to, back to the future. Now, I would suggest to you it would be better to go the other way. And you don't need to look very far to understand and to check this for yourself. Mm -hmm. The prosperity of your nation depends on how much energy each individual can, can, can deploy. So the more cheap, plentiful energy you have, the better off you are and the freer you are and the more individual determination you have. It's as simple as that. If you look at the, I recommend you look at Gapminder and or learn how to use it. Just Gapminder, just remember that. Hans Rosling, late Hans Rosling developed it in Sweden. Has all the global statistics from all the countries that keep those statistics and will show you how energy use and GDP per capita, i.e. how wealthy the country is per individual basis are closely linked. If you're American, I'm very sorry, you are rich <laughs> so, okay. and you are about 50% richer than the people in Europe. And guess what? People in America are using about 50% more energy per capita than the people in Europe. Uh, if you have big populations, that's a reasonably good comparison to make. So if you have less energy, you're going to be poorer. Okay. There isn't another way. <laughs> There isn't another way of understanding it, mealy-mouthing it. Energy is life. Okay, very good. The more life you want, the more... And importantly, this applies in particular to the environment. Because the more wealth a nation has, the more disposable wealth it has, if you like, above the Maslow's hierarchy of food and shelter and safety, then, well, let's get to safety. Flood defences bomb shelters, whatever you want, you know, you can adapt to nature far better and you can clean up any mess you made while you were getting to this stage if you are wealthy. If you're not wealthy, you're, you, 
you're a, what is it? The Chinese have a proverb, don't they? With money, you are a roaring tiger. Without money, you are a crawling worm. <laughs> okay. And that's what, that's what you look at. That's what you see in developed countries. Terrible environmental damage. Well, that's because they're trying to get developed and they've got a population explosion temporarily because their children stopped dying because the wealth from the developed countries gave them the contraception and the medical, the sanitation to, so the children don't die anymore. They used to have to have six children so they could survive, have two survive. Now in Bangladesh, for instance, it's 2.1 women, children per woman. Now, oh. Most people who talk about population would say, oh, five, six, something like that. Nothing of the sort. Were you going to ask a question then? I had no idea. I'm shocked at that number from, you said Bangladesh, 2.1? That shocks yep. me. I had no yep. idea. Well, all around anywhere that is reasonably free and is developing and does not have some nutcase religious group running it, and which doesn't include Iran, because <laughs> Iran's the same. Anywhere where they've got a basically a developed lifestyle, you will find it's about, oh, just, just when you get home, anybody listening, just turn around and ask Echo or Amazon, how many women per born per child in the country of your choice? And okay. um, you will find it's about two point something. Okay. It's a bit higher in North Africa. It's about three, three and a bit in Egypt. And, you know, they're on the way, Algeria, Tunisia, the rest of them. The only places it's still in the misery, you know, the misery of the medieval times is Central Africa and Afghanistan and Pakistan sort of still a bit, you know, for all the reasons that we know, you know that they have no rule of law. You, you're just lucky to stay alive if, okay. till you're 10. So, so question is, is here. Sorry? A quick question. Do you happen to know what that number is globally? How many kids per couple? If you take it as for the entire globe, I wonder what that number might be. No, but what I will say is it's going to be some somewhere between two, two and six. It's going to be less than, it's going to be about three and a bit because of the very large numbers of people who are still in developing countries. Okay. There's, there's a lot of people in Africa. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot of them are still dying. And of course, the other thing is once your children stop dying, you can go out and do productive work and you can stop being told what to do all the time. So women all of a sudden want to, you know, get a bit empowered because they're going out and they're earning money, which is one of the many reasons why they don't like it happening in Pakistan and Afghanistan and places like that because they want their women doing what they're told and wandering around in, in, mm -hmm. in sheet. Energy is wealth and wealth is a safe, safe environment that you can enjoy. You actually have time to enjoy in your life. So that's it. So now... Where does the energy come from? Now, we're actually, Doug Lightfoot says this, we're actually very short on choice because we know that windmills and water mills could only power, plus all the people you could conquer and all the horses that they could get, or oxen, was how you got power until the industrial age because energy was carbohydrate power, wind and water. Okay, carbohydrate power being people and animals. And that means that for the whole of civilization, this interglacial, I would call civilization, it was hunter gathering before that, really, as far as we know. For the whole of the, up until 200 years ago, there's a wonderful speech, part of the Rice University speech from Kennedy on the moonshot about, he covers this, 
for the whole of that time, virtually, nothing changed. We knew how to farm. We'd figured that out. They had horses. We had wheels on carts. And we had windmills and watermills. And, and that was it. And then all of a sudden came steam. And steam changed everything because initially you had massive mechanical energy, which you could deploy to make things and go off and conquer the world, which the British famous, famous I think I covered that last time. Yes, uh, you make guns and you go and hold everybody else to ransom because they, they haven't figured out how to do that yet. <laughs> you take all their raw materials until they sort of manage to get hold of some. I mean, the Indians in, in the great American West, the Indians I seem to remember were armed with tomahawks from Sheffield. And Winchester rifles made somewhere else in America. So it's a bit, a bit like all the other wars. But anyway, the next thing that happened, of course, was Faraday and the rest of them with electricity. So all of a sudden we could get this energy and instead of having to use it where it was generated, we could transmit it to places and it would drive machines. Now people are getting really powerful. One guy can operate a machine producing massive output, whereas in the old days you'd have hit it with armor and whatever it was. So productivity went through the roof, which meant everybody got richer. And eventually, after 100 years, they were forced to share it, of course. They didn't give it. The, 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 the Rockefellers and the Gettys and the J.P. Morgans in your part of the world and all our miserable bunches crooks as well, they all hung on to it and pretended to be philanthropic, of course, but they were keeping everybody in poverty, basically, for as long as they could get away with it. And then socialism came along and forced them to share some of it. And to this day, we're still only given what they think they can get away with. How much of our wealth can the elites take back through the government they control in taxation and all the rest of it? So where does the energy come from? So we've got steam, we've got mechanical energy, then we've got electricity. How do we create the steam? Electricity, of course, is made by creating steam and turning a turbine, mostly. And that can be with a nuclear boiler or a gas boiler or a coal boiler. Those are your three choices. Oh, well, a wood boiler, but then the forests. As soon as you start that trick, the forests all disappear, which is what happened in America, which stopped burning wood about 1850, I think, um, because their trees, <laughs> trees all disappear really fast. So... Trees aren't, biofuel's not really an option because of the huge amount of land it uses. So you can use it a bit, but why do that when you could be growing food on the land and you can build a nuclear power station? It makes no sense. So then we move on to what we had first was coal, which is still a great fuel. It's highly energetic and it's reasonably cheap to get hold of. And we still got shed loads of it, but for all sorts of reasons, one being it's very, once you've got a pipe that you can connect a power station to, gas is a great fuel. If you've got a source of gas which is self-pressurizing and it, you can feed it along pipes to a power station, it burns clean. It's perfect. You know, all it does is produces carbon dioxide and water vapor, both of which are greenhouse gases, by the way. Water vapor, more greenhouse gas than the carbon dioxide. So but you know, nobody ever mentions that. And guess what happens when you burn hydrogen? What you get? You get water, <laughs> which is another greenhouse gas but there. Yeah. It's the right sort of greenhouse gas. <laughs> it's our sort of greenhouse. Oh, and it's well subsidized. So we'd much rather do that. I am curious, though. Nobody ever does talk about that. Do human emissions of water vapor, how big of a deal is that climate-wise? No idea. 
Okay. And I'm, <laughs> there's nothing like being an honest scientist. It's uh -huh. an interesting question. But on the other hand, I, I think last time I covered rather comprehensively the point that greenhouse gases are a small effect anyway, relatively mm -hmm. yes. small compared yeah. to the total mm -hmm. temperature gradient yeah. of space. Yeah. And a change of carbon dioxide that's such at the level that the humans are involved in is unlikely to have much net effect at all. It has, has about a degree effect if there was no feedback, mm -hmm. a blue sky effect of about a degree for every doubling. And I'm just repeating last time now. Yep. And if you allow for the feedback, which they don't in the models, because they're waggling one little thing and measuring the temp and assuming the temperature change that they see was all due to that. Whereas in fact, all these other things aren't stable and are moving around from feedback and probably the effect is net zero. And in fact, net zero is what we see when we compare today's direct measured temperatures with the proxy temperatures, the cycles of the past. It's almost identical. There probably is a small effect, but it's too small to measure. And, and there's no emergency or no big problem because we're well inside the range of this interglacial temperature. But certainly the, the hokey stick <laughs> produced by using, getting the data and applying one of these to it, it's just a nonsense. It's not borne out by, it's not supported by the data anywhere. There's, there's two, there's Marcotte as well, which, which NASA, to their shame, still publish. Yeah. showing a spike going massively off above the level of the current interglacial. And we know it's not. Right. We just know it's not. And that's how we're putting it out there. Anyway, let's talk about energy density again. So gas and coal, anybody can look this up, by the way. You can just ask for a graph of energy intensity of common fuels or something like that. So you find wood and ethanol and methanol and petrol and all these things that are really energy intense and coal. They're all there. Batteries are down here. The, the amount of energy you put in a battery is, is very little per unit weight. So these fuels are, are massively intense. So you, know, you can get a one gigawatt power station, let's say, and, and a small patch of land, a few acres of land, and that will drive the grid and run at a gigawatt 24-7. You can't do that with wind power and water power. And when people say the wind, oh, but the wind is free. There's a famous answer to that by a guy who was a shipping magnet, who had, in the, in the age of steam, steam was coming. And he very quickly junked his, uh, didn't junk them, he presumably sold them off, but he sold all his ships, his sailing ships, pure sail, and got his new steam hybrid. <laughs> right. Huh. And somebody said to him, what are you doing buying all these things? You know, all this expensive coal you have to burn when the wind's free. And he, he just, his answer was very quick and simple. He said, only the wind is free. Only the wind is free. Okay. Now, and what that means is, is a whole load of things. You can't get from A to B anything like as fast in the sailing mm -hmm. ship because you don't have the wind the whole time. You don't need people managing sails. Mm -hmm. And if the wind if there's a gale and it's onshore and you are unfortunately too close to the land when it started you're a goner you can't sail away from it you know under certain circumstances and ships were wrecked i mean there's so many sailing ships banged up against the shores of all around the world people died all the time huge numbers of people died at sea from drowning so steam really got rid of all that so you, you don't lose the ships and then there's the last thing 
in terms, not the boats now, going back to land, it's only very weak, unstructured energy, wind energy. It's basically noise in the atmosphere. <laughs> so you have, and water's the same. And, and it flows, water flows and the air flows when it wants to. I mean, yes, you can predict tides, but it's not constant. It's not flat out all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's not like having something you burn, fuel you control. So, so it's always intermittent. And to collect it, because it's a weak and unstructured source, you need a lot more resource. So you need acres and acres of land, tons and tons of steel and concrete for windmills, about 10 times the equivalent nuclear power station, right? So one gigawatt of nuclear power versus one gigawatt of wind power, you'd need, I think it's more than that actually, if, mm -hmm. if you consider the energy rather than the power, there's so much de deception and confusion in this. Power rating is important to understand because if you say I've got a one gigawatt wind power farm and a one gigawatt power station, that's not the same thing in energy right. terms because your wind farm only works well on land. Sorry, let's say it's an offshore one. So maximum, it could work half the time and it will last if you're lucky about a third the time. It'd probably be out of service before that, but let, let's just say half let's say half the time so that's a quarter of the output lifetime output so something that's a one gigawatt it's a per unit measure so if you say per, if, if it's one unit if the power of your windmill is the same as the power of your nuclear power station then in fact if it's offshore it's actually a quarter of the energy you're going to get out for the money you put in and people just don't get that so, and, and that makes the capital expenditure required to build a wind farm offshore about four times the nuclear power plant, because they're about one to one in terms of cost on power. So they're four times worse, four times more for the windmill if you actually consider the lifetime energy output. Yeah. So when, when Al Gore is saying that wind power sometimes is cheaper than coal power, he's using that type of math, right? He's not doing the math correctly. That's yeah, my, exactly. I suspect that. Yeah. Well, then, of course, we get to the issue of that's just that's just the effect of intermittency because it does or doesn't work. What about what you have to do about that? Now, if you are relying on renewables, what do you what are you going to do? You, well, you can't rely on renewables, obviously. In fact, so what do you do? You say, oh, I know what. We'll have a hundred hundred percent gas backup. So you need all the gas generation available for when the wind isn't blowing and there are times when the wind doesn't blow and you can't have the grid turning off then and that can be probably all across america i don't know american weather that well but i imagine there are times when you have a massive high pressure system and there's no wind anywhere and that happens across europe so you can't get wind power from another country even to back you up and by the way the, the cables we talk about here it's a joke in the uk these guys oh we'll have interconnects to europe to which the answer is, do you actually realize that a cable across to Europe is going to cost you about the same for an extension lead to another country's grid as it will cost you to build a back capacity power station here? So why would you even do that? It's bonkers. It's sort of giving your energy security to somebody else and spending the money you could have spent just to build your own power station. It's totally bonkers. So do you have a, any calculation as to what percent of the power you lose if you have a 1,000 mile power cable? 
What no, percent is there at the other end? Yeah. Well, it depends how fat you make it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> they use these, right? Because literally it's, it's the ohmic resistance. Okay. It's not that high, but they, these are really expensive. Oh, oh, what you do, of course, to get around that problem is you have very high voltages. Okay. Because it because power is volts times amps. So if you have an overhead line or something like you don't want a bloody great big heavy cat's pardon my French cable hanging up in the sky, you want it to be quite light. In fact, they use aluminium. So yeah. what you have to yeah. do is to have a very high voltage so you can have a lower current, and then you have all the transformers to step it down. Okay. To, but just imagine now we're under the sea, running a hundred kV cable. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Long comes, long comes Mr. Mr. Z in his giant fishing boat, scraping yeah. the bottom out of your ocean, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden your cable's broken and it doesn't take much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, there's all sorts of problems with cables. So you're much better having a sovereign energy reserve always if you can. And so anyway, let, let's go back to the more intense. The, the reason that coal and gas are a better deal and cheaper is because they're a much more intense energy source in the first place, the coal and the gas. And I was talking about intermittency. So you've got to have either as much instant gas as we used to call it, because it's very fast response to CCGT and it's very efficient, it's 60% thermally efficient. So it's a good thing to do if you've got gas. Otherwise you use coal. And you have to have that ready to go all the time so when the wind don't blow. Now, that cost is never included. They say that's okay. the cost of the grid. Okay. Oh, the grid has to manage this, this, this intermittency from these wonderful windmills. Oh, really? Well, why don't we just switch these wonderful windmills that are costing us two or three times as much because of subsidies off and just run the gas? Yes. Which is unsubsidized and normally 55, you know, half the price. Oh, uh, well, it's not. Won't be saving the planet then. Won't be saving whoever's collecting all the subsidies, that's for sure. Now, the other thing you can do, people say, oh, we'll have batteries. And this is such a joke because anybody who says that has never done the maths. I have. I wrote a paper on it about three or four years ago. Quite hard to get these things published, by the way, even by your own institution. But I've got it out there. It worked. If you want a day's worth of backup in the UK, the UK we use about one terawatt hour of, of energy per day. That's one times 10 to the 12 watt hours. It's a good number. It's a nice round number to talk about, which means seven terawatt hours a week. But what I did was I worked out, okay, let's just say, take a nice engineer's limiting condition, get the back of the envelope out and do some numbers. I need a terawatt hour. How many lithium ion batteries am I going to have to buy at bulk buying prices to provide that one terawatt hour a day's energy? And it turns out it's 400, let me see, I think it's 400 billion, billion. It works out 50 billion per year for eight years to do that. So that's 50 billion per year. For, yeah, eight five, 400 billion. Mm -hmm. 400 billion quids worth of Mr. Nice Mr. Musk lithium ion batteries. 50 billion per year in amortization, if you like. And you have to keep doing that because after eight years, the batteries are goners. Now, for that much money, you can build a lot of nuclear power stations just for the batteries, which all, all they're doing is storing energy and, 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 and 
you've got to generate a surplus of energy with your wind farms when they're working, spinning like mad, to charge the batteries up for when they're gone. So it's, uh, it's nutty. It's about, I did the sums for our 300 terawatt hours per annum, and it would add, it would put the cost of electricity up by a factor of 10 to do that. It's just madness. So it doesn't make any sense when you could just build yourself a nice nuclear power station. Now, there's a whole other discussion, which I probably, I would like to talk about. I've done a talk on this for my own IEE organization about nuclear power and waste and the issues around nuclear. They're all highly manageable and not a problem either. People, oh, they've left them out in the desert. Well, the reason they've left them out in the desert is they probably, probably can use the spent fuel from the old technology as new fuel for the new technologies. So, and it's not a problem. They're in concrete vats and they're in the middle of New Mexico desert and it's a bit hard to get into them. And if you did, you'd be a bit balmy. And there's no problem with proliferation of wetlands. Nobody anywhere in the world has tried to build a bomb out of a civilian nuclear program. Okay. It's, it's, it's just a dumb idea. Um, and the stealing fuel rods is definitely a bad idea. It'd be all right if you could get the new ones going in. If you're trying to steal the new ones coming out, I mean, just to handle them is incredibly dangerous to life. You okay. don't want to do that. Yeah. It, it, it's, there's a wonderful talk by a guy from Idaho National Laboratories that explains exactly this, you know, what's happened in the past with this, how people have got nuclear weapons without asking permission. Please, sir, can I have one like you guys that have got one so I can be on, blow you up as well as you can blow me up? And, and that we know how that's worked. Pakistan, India, Korea, North Korea, all the rest of them. Oh, so I do have a question at this point. Let's say malicious people get into a nuclear power plant in the United States and they want to do something bad and, and kill the local people. What can they do? Is there something they can do if they get in there? To like no, to kill everybody. Really. Well, well, That's the I word. Mean, it's a good, it's yeah. a good question. How would yeah. they do that? I, I mean, first, yeah. somebody famously said, uh, "What would happen?" One of the nuclear reactors had a pool, which was open for some reason. It was, you, and you could see down inside it. And there's quite a high dose rate where the actual reactor core is. And then there's a load of water, and you can see the Cherenkov radiation, some blue glow you get above there which is quite impressive. And then around the, the edge, there's the bit where the, the maintenance people can, can can play with it. And somebody said, what would happen if you if you fell in there? And the guy said, well, you'd probably die of lead poisoning. Oh, OK. Lead poisoning. He said, what do you mean lead poisoning? He said you'd have several bullets in you before you uh, hit the wall. OK, okay. All, right. <laughs> they're, they're, All right. They're not unarmed in these places, you know. Mm -hmm. And what are you going to do? How are you going? How are you going to do anything with it? I mean, the first thing that they, they get as soon as they have a security breach is they'd shut the thing down. Mm -hmm. And once you drop the rods, that's by, it, it needs to cool down. I very much doubt when you get to the control room, how would you get in in the first place? It's not exactly, what is it? What was Homer Simpson's one? Was it Springfield or whatever? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not Mr. Burns' place, you know, he isn't cut back. They do have to have security guards, and I'm sure there are. The, the, problem, and the other thing is, the modern ones, which we would now need to build to replace the old ones, 
have all got 72 hours of or something similar an emergency cooling thing okay the the one we have in europe the french one god forbid um is has 72 hours worth of water in the roof i think the the westinghouse ap1000 has a similar thing so it's gravity right you don't need pumps or anything so if you shut your reactor down you've got a mechanical system that can feed it with cooling water for 72 hours which is enough to stop it from melting down and the only thing that happens if it does go wrong is it melts a hole through the bottom of the 500 ton steel forging that it's in it just just makes a big nuclear mess okay. a pile of gunge at the bottom and that falls through to the concrete underneath and sits there and quietly simmers away for a few hundred years until it's not radioactive anymore that's the other thing it doesn't stay radioactive okay all right but it sounds like there's nothing that a malicious like an army could do to that power plant to kill everybody for a 30 mile radius from there. I think that's the um, worry that I'm hearing on Twitter that they would do, there's nothing, what yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's nothing that's to a, do. That's just completely delusional because okay. the, worst, the worst that could happen is that the thing could, but it can't explode, right? It, you can't have a nuclear explosion. Okay, all right. In a power station, that's, that's completely, delusional. if that's what they're thinking, they're, they're, they're bonkers. Mm -hmm. You okay. need pure, you need, but people should be told these things. You need pure uranium at a purity of over 90% to make a weapon. Mm -hmm. This is 5% enriched. 95% yeah. of the fuel is uranium 238, which is fissile but can't fission. You have to have odd numbers. I'm, I'm told that, yes, I, I was told rather summarily when I said nobody knows why this is by somebody who did. Oh, yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't ask them to explain. So yes, we do at the nuclear physics level. Feynman would understand it. Why the odd numbers fission, i.e. when you put a neutron into them or several neutrons, then they'll actually split apart into two different elements, isotopes. And the even numbers won't. And by the way, thorium reactors, you've probably heard about, oh, we can use thorium because that's the only thing that's different about thorium is it's not called uranium. Okay. And because what happened, the first thing that happens is you take thorium, I forget what it is, 234? No, no, no. Two, I, I think it's 232. That's the atomic weight. And you bang and bang some neutrons into it, and then it becomes uranium. <laughs> right, the, 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 the neutrons convert, one of the neutrons has to become a proton or whatever. Whatever happens, the first thing it does is to become uranium with an odd atomic number, which can then fission. Okay, interesting. But it is a yeah. potential fuel, sorry, but we don't need to use it. We've got uranium and you can get in, we, you can probably get enough uranium out of the sea, by the way. There's, uh, there's some experiments already being done in pilot to see how much it would cost. And it's $200 a pound. Okay, All right. To get uranium out of the sea. And this, shed loads of uranium in the sea because guess what it comes out of rocks okay all rocks have uranium thorium other heavy metals in them and what happens is it rains and they erode and they run down the rivers to the sea and so the sea is full of uranium and thorium oh. and other stuff and, and it also of course every time there's an eruption of a volcano you get a load of uranium and thorium coming oh. out which is why a lot of these monazite sand beaches which have very high dose rates which nobody even bothers 
to worry about. You go to Guapari, Brazil, it's 300 millisieverts mm. per annum, which is 150 times what you get oh. in London. Interesting. And, and, and let me see now, how much is that? 10, 15 times more than the evacuation level that they used at Fukushima. Okay. You get that when okay. you go and sunbathe in Brazil. Interesting. <laughs> Doug Lightfoot mentioned some of this when he did his podcast with me. Super interesting. But one thing I do need to understand better is when Chernobyl melted down or whatever happened there, how far away from there could you have been safe standing around and, and no real ill effects? I have no idea what that radius was. I don't know if you have any ideas on that one. I, I suspect it's quite close. You could be quite close. The problem the problem is not electromagnetic radiation, okay? This is where we get down to real science. Okay. Electromagnetic station radiation is waves what can penetrate you, go right through you. You can get quite low voltage ones that are absorbed quite significantly by the body. They're, actually, they tend to be the ones you use for taking x-rays with. Okay. They're called soft x-rays. Then you get hard x-rays. Of course, they're really high frequencies. Okay. And they'll go straight through you. Good really high energy radiation, funnily enough, is hardly attenuated at all by the body. Just go straight through one side out there. But they are all forms of ionizing radiation. And that generally is not a problem. You just get a reasonable distance away, and a quarter of a mile. I, I would think actually probably 100 yards was enough to do the job for you at Chernobyl. Okay. Just getting really close to it is the bad thing. And the reason I, I don't know what the actual radius, what, what there were 30 radiation deaths. So I think 29, one of them was a physical accident to the immediate responders who basically wandered up to the core and pointed a hose pipe at it and mm -hmm. tried to shut the doors or whatever else they could do. And yeah. they were just horrific levels of radiation. And they die right and sort of kills you from the inside out. It's not nice. They don't have burns and sores all over them. You literally just collapse internally okay it's not like you read and, and no there wasn't a glow over chernobyl it's all complete nonsense that didn't happen okay. either. i'm trying to i'm not getting to the point the point is the isotopes that are emitted that you ingest and will take part in your physiology and things like strontium and iodine are analogs for other things and an iodine in fact is something you need in your thyroid and what happened at chernobyl was that 30 people died because they basically got very, very close to the core and received horrendous doses. Most of the other people who were literally hiding outside behind a concrete wall at a, you know, at a safe distance, a few hundred yards, mm -hmm. would go in, shovel that stuff off the roof and mugger off again. Sorry, technical expression we use in engineering. Okay. Um, you know, you've had your time. Time's up. Bing! Okay. So they give, and the, the, they could roughly work out what dose they would get from doing that. I don't think anybody's died from doing that. So the, the business of an accident, first of all, there was no containment of the Chernobyl reactor and it was a graphite core type, which is used to make plutonium for weapons. And you don't have a graphite core for any other reason, basically. So production reactors, for commercial reactors, are run on lowly, low enriched fuel. They're in a great big steel vessel, all bolted down, that can hold the pressure of, of the reaction and they can be shut down very quickly. If something actually does go wrong, and for some reason or other, the water completely disappears and the core just melts its way through the bottom and hits the concrete, 
then the question is, can it get out? Well, no, not normally, because the whole thing is in a containment vessel itself, right? So it's a, an isolated environment. If stuff does get out, like a Chernobyl, all out of Chernobyl was like one of your standard slab of concrete resting on the walls. So it just blew the roof, <laughs> blew the roof yeah. off. Um, so that's how that happened. And then out came the core. So what you've now got is iodine and strontium sort of drifting down onto the countryside. And they didn't tell the people not to drink the milk. And they oh. didn't give them any iodine tablets. No. If, if you go to, I don't know what happens in America, but if you go and live anywhere near a reactor in England, you'll have iodine tablets issued by the state that you keep in your bathroom cabinet in case okay. of a very unlikely accident. And that is the case. I know people who live by Sizewell and they've got iodine tablets. Okay. Everybody have asked, said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are, you, are you worried about it? No, we get work there when they're doing service time, <laughs> service downtime. You know. So... So the problem at Chernobyl was primarily the other deaths that occurred, other than the 30 first responders, were 20 of the 6,000 people who contracted thyroid cancer. Some of those would have got thyroid cancer anyway, because obviously the epidemiology tells you that if you go somewhere else, you'll find it doesn't. Mm -hmm. such, such a proportion of the people will get it. But it was obviously an effect because people ingested the iodine and it went to their thyroid the I-131 radioactive, and, and it decayed there. The thing about these 6,000 people was that this, this cancer is treatable. So they were all treated, and 20 of them died, they think. Tw okay. There were 20 deaths from thyroid cancer, which they think are attributable. It's all epidemiology, so they can't yeah. be sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's 50 people died. That's the lot. Nobody died from radiation at Fukushima. Mm -hmm. um, and guess what? Thousands died from causes related to the evacuation. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they took old folks' homes and emptied them when they were going to be dead in five years naturally anyway. Mm -hmm. And they dragged them off and away and that finished okay. them off. And people who were taken yeah. away from their farms or their businesses, you know, been doing all mm -hmm. their lives. Mm -hmm. In the case of Fukushima, it's a bit difficult to see what else they could have done because the whole place Nobody died from radiation, but people always forget that 15,000 plus people died from the tsunami and the earthquake, which is probably right. a slightly bigger problem. And there was no infrastructure left. So there, there was a reason to evacuate people on the basis that they, there was no way to care for okay. people. You got the idea. Yeah. But uh, you have to be careful. Yeah. Go on. One other thing is... Isn't it true that per unit of power that way more people die from solar, rooftop solar than from nuclear power just because people falling off the roof, et cetera? Well, yeah. You would, yeah. There's all sorts of stuff. The worst one is if you take the whole world statistics, I'd do a whole talk on this. We should do it. I can do that as a separate thing. Okay. But the, the most people who died have died from hydroelectric power. Okay. Yeah. Because the dams break. Yes. And all of a sudden, you've got a quarter of a million people or something yeah. drowned. This all is right. a bad thing. It happened in China. There are all sorts of things that happen, but the, the statistics are that the deaths per unit energy by modality, nuclear is the safest by far, and renewables certainly are. You know, we're putting wind farms up and taking it. It's all quite risky business when you're working on it. 
and people die for all sorts of strange reasons. But nuclear certainly has not has barely killed anybody compared to any other. Coal, of course, is responsible for a lot of deaths because it has to be mined. This is this is oh, yeah. end to oh, end yeah. death. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the whole supply chain. Gas is quite good. But well, I'd have to put the numbers up. I'd have to be doing the talk. Nuclear is definitely the safest. And, and if you look up any UN or um, I, IAEA, uh, IEA mm. documentation, you'll find that, that just is the case. Okay. So okay. Death, uh, death per kilowatt hour or whatever it is. All right. Do you think there's a lot of people right now that are in danger of their nearby dam breaking and they're going to die from a flood. I mean, do they have that designed in at all that in case it breaks there, they have people living in places where they're not going to get flooded or is there a lot of risk right what, now? Yeah. Depends what country you live in. Okay. It's all to do with elf and safety, as we say in the UK. Okay. All right. There's little elves going around with white hats and high okay. jackets and rule books and clipboards. Okay. And basically they are, I mean, there's a pretty rigorous regime to check dams, although when things go wrong, you find, oh, well, the guys with the clipboards and the pens aren't really that conscientious. And okay. There was one in the UK quite recently where they found the water completely taken away the earth that was underneath this concrete dam. So it was just kind of sitting there waiting to collapse. So they evacuated okay. the village underneath. Okay. All right. And I don't know. They went up and poured stuff in. But basically, where you have a duly commissioned and authorized and regulated industry, is subject to inspection by law. You can still have problems because people are people are stupid sometimes, and some of them aren't competent. But generally, it's the third world where these disasters occur. I mean, just think okay. about the collapsing, especially where they're mining or something like that. I know that's not hydroelectric, but they had these waste pools where they mm. they they put stuff, uh, tailings or whatever, mm. oh, yes. and with coal-fired power stations, they put the the ash they collect in ponds i don't know why and every now and again i mean i read about one in the tennessee valley which was a bit of a disaster where it, it basically it wasn't properly maintained it burst its banks and all the junk went into the local river okay which right. was, which, which which did not impress the fish population gave up and turned turned on their backs and floated up to the surface right. oh. okay so but g getting to the point you don't want to ingest radioisotopes and these are the things, there are two sorts. There's ones that are beta emitters. Just to, I'm just finishing off the thread. Yep. Yep. There are beta emitters, which you can stop with a bit of silver for. You might remember this from school. Yep. So you need lead to stop uh, electromagnetic radiation. You need tinfoil will stop betas. And alphas you can stop with paper okay. or your skin. But that will give you a nasty burn. And that's the problem. If you have an alpha emitter, like polonium-210 that they gave to nice Mr. Um, Litvinenko mm -hmm. to kill him, it's got massive energy because it's got four four atomic units. It's got two neutrons, two protons in it, and, and they're energetic. And you've eaten it. And it yeah. is an analogue, so it will go to a part of your body where whatever its natural analogue goes to. And it's you know, inverse square laws works pretty powerfully when it's actually in direct physical contact. So it's a bad idea to eat radioisotopes or to breathe them in or to anything. Them. Some of them are okay. They do it to you. If you have a blood, if you, you want to have your 
arteries and venous system looked at, for instance, in your brain, to see if you've got a clot or something like that, they'll give you a nuclear medicine scan, right? And, and you have to, and what they do is they inject radioactive technetium into you, which they've, and that makes your blood radioactive. And they have a big gamma camera sitting outside looking at you. And it can see where all the vessels are. And it can see where there's obstructions and stuff like that. But the half-life is less than a day. The biological half-life is less than a day, which means you're wear out within a few hours. Okay. And the physic and the actual radiation half-life is similarly a few hours, I think. So it decays very rapidly as well. So it's okay for, from the point of view of the relative risks of the medical procedure. Why not? So there, you, you, there are ways if you know what it is that you're doing with the thing that you're using, the isotope that you're using, and it's a well-developed practice, that's fine. Going around breathing deeply around an open nuclear core is not a recommended procedure. Okay. But the chances of that happening, how you have to ask yourself, how could that happen? And the answer is it can't because of the way that nuclear reactors are built. And and and, and last but not least, if they tried to attack it from outside, I've got some things I'll send you, but people can look this up for themselves. This was all tested back back in the day when they were building them after the military had stopped building them. You don't want the military building anything because all they're interested in is, you know, having a weapon as fast as possible. They're regimes of environmental friendly radioactive disposal are just awful. Okay. Um, and, and so you want to avoid that. I forgot to mention Three Mile Island. Good. All that happened at Three Mile Island was exactly what I just described. The core melted down. It's presumably still sitting on the floor. The reactor next door kept running. And I think it's only recently been shut down, in fact. And there was a bit of gas that got out, radio argon or something like that, which you can ingest. But nobody was subjected to any significant radiation dose. Yeah, and, and the sort of Jane Fonda nonsense was, mm -hmm. uh, what was it called? I found the reactor melting through to the core. It's Hollywood. <laughs> as, as, as one of the, their actors has said, you know, they said, oh, but we saw this on the movies. It's, it's, it's Hollywood. <laughs> it's nothing to do with reality. I mean, there's it's that. Pretty... I think a major influence possibly in the U.S. might be The Simpsons. You mentioned that. Homer Simpson, he's incompetent yeah, and all the fish have three eyes and the nuclear power. <laughs> the whole idea, and don't want to talk about external attacks with people crashing mm -hmm. into reactors, but the whole idea of uh, the twin uh, of the cooling towers is as being the thing that you should be scared of is so stupid. It's untrue. Anybody that the only reason they do cooling towers is because it's the cheapest way to cool the cooling water, the, the, the lowest temperature stage of the cooling water. And they will suck that water out of a river, run it over something, so it's actually exposed. And then you get latent heat and evaporation. You get some evaporation, and that really cools the water down, and they put it back into the system again. And if you do that in a cooling tower, that's designed to create an updraft, so it's got its own airflow. Mm -hmm. And all that's coming out the top, of course, is the water that's evaporated. That's yeah. And it's nowhere, that particular circuit is nowhere near the cooling circuit, which is superheated steam at 400 degrees, the primary cooling circuit for the reactor. 
Okay. So it's nothing to do with that. And, and so there are heat exchangers in series. So there, there's no physical mm-hmm. liquid connection, right? So what you can do is, in fact, what they had at Chernobyl and what we have down the road here in Dinkot B, which is a gas-fired power station, is just a row of fans, big, big fans. You've probably got some in America if you look for them. And what they do is suck air up through, in our case, they wooden boxes, just great big wooden boxes. And the water is fed in at the top and trickles down over some crinkly, imagine crinkled up silver paper or something like that, Okay. and goes out the bottom. And the air is sucked in through the bottom and goes up past the water as the water's going down. And they're two stories high, just two floors, like a normal house, if you like, a two-story yeah. house. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know what you call them in America. It's got a ground floor and a first floor, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you could literally put a nuclear power station or any power station, actually, because it's just cooling for the steam circuit that all power stations have. You could have that surrounded by a row of trees and nobody would know it was there. Okay. All right. But you do actually need a chimney in a nuclear power station and in case you need to discharge something to the atmosphere, usually gas, gas of some kind. It might be radioactive, but it's unlikely to be. So they'll need a chimney to, as a vent, effectively, for some any any event. And that's the only thing you'll have. And, and the whole reactor can be sort of semi-buried in the ground, which is mm-hmm. what the Rolls-Royce one is probably going to be. And you can have cooling fans alongside it. And literally, you could drive past the site and you'd not know it was there. Okay. And right. They keep building these stupid concrete things. Why make it obvious to people there's a power station there? Monkers. So there's nothing to worry about. Nothing to see here. <laughs> is there any real technical reason why you couldn't build a power plant, a nuclear plant, in two or three years? Right? If there wasn't any red tape and you just wanted to build the plant, couldn't you build it in a, in a two or three years? Yeah. Couldn't you? Or I don't know. Yeah, the current time is seven. I looked it up the other night. But it's mostly regulatory bullshit. Well, yes, the answer to your question is go and see how long it takes the Chinese currently, because that's how long you can do it without regulation. Okay, all right. And they still have safety inspections. They just have the, they don't have citizens getting in the way of the problem. If you get in the way of a problem in China, you end up with a bullet in your head. Okay, all right. Quietly, <laughs> you disappear okay. in the prison you've been sent to. Oh, whoops, it seems okay. to have fallen off the register. Um, the, the Russians have an expression for it. It's called dead men don't cause problems. Okay, all right. Are <laughs> that's, they... how you, that's how you build a reactor quickly. If you want to know what the non-interference time mm-hmm. is, yeah. look at the Chinese one. Uh, are they doing this in China? Are they building lots of nuclear plants right now? or <laughs> Lots of coal? I don't know. Yeah, what, what kind of plants are they building? I'm curious if you know the numbers. Uh, how many I of each did... type? Yeah. I well, they're building. Co- I know they've got 126 coal-fired plants. Plan. Plan. Okay. It's quite a. They were, I think they were talking last time I looked. I've got a. I haven't got the numbers to hand, but I. I think it was 30 they were planning. Really? Okay. All right. You know, the 30 actually beyond the stage of being planned. You know, they're actually okay. they are going to build them, and they were at some stage in the process of the design and. Breaking ground and all the rest of it, so that they're doing it. And interestingly, you remember I talked about it. Just depends what sort of boiler you have. Yes, yeah. Well, nuclear boilers are great because they're a billion. I'm sorry, billion. Now I'm getting carried away. A million times more energy intense. And I wanted to say why that was. The reason 
that the energy is so much greater is that the way you get energy, you, you will not have heard this before. Yeah. I don't know anybody who's really said this to me, so I don't think a lot of people know. Where does the energy come from in a chemical reaction? Right? No, I, don't it, I don't know. It, the chemist would tell you, oh, it's because it's exothermic. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> Where does it come from? And, and they say, uh, um, uh, <laughs> mumble. Okay. Gone. No, no explanation. And I had to work, I had to figure it out. It's actually the, it's E equals MC squared again. Einstein again. What happens is that the compounds that are on the right right hand side of the equation, what you end yeah. up with, are lighter fractionally than the ones you started with. Okay. So if you burn, I don't know, hydrogen and oxygen, if you combine hydrogen and oxygen, what you get, the water that you get, is lighter than the combined mm. weights of the hydrogen and oxygen that went in. And where has what's happened there? Is that the binding energies have changed and so it's the it's the molecular binding energy of the molecule the original molecules yeah. and the resultant molecules are different and the energy is less mm -hmm. in the so the mass the, the mass and energy relationship follows if you just weigh the two things and work out and, and then you put the M you get into E equals MC squared, you mm. can work out immediately how much energy you get. Okay. Now, for a chemical reaction, that's just the electron binding energy of the molecules, which is reasonably modest. Okay. Compared, very intense compared to any natural energy source, but apart from wood, maybe. Um, but with nuclear energy, you're it's not the binding energy of the molecule, it's the binding energy of the nucleus of the atom. And that is massively greater. That's all it is. Okay. So if you split an atom apart, the binding energy that you release is enormous in comparison to the binding energy of a molecule, which is what you are changing. You're just recombining elements in a different form. Okay. So that's where the energy comes from. It's actually the mass change. And the okay. and, oh, well, hang on a minute. And the mass change when you split an atom is much greater than the mass change when you split a molecule. Bubble. Okay. By about a million times. So that's that's a short yeah. lesson on where the energy comes from. That's... Now let's talk about where you can go for a bit of fun if you're bored. Apart from going to Hans Rosling's Gapminder and learning how to use it, mm -hmm. I should be mm -hmm. I should be taking notes. I ask them to write in and say, ask, ask, please write please write in and say what you think of Gapminder when you've used it. Plot your own graphs. It's okay. great fun. And and you can they're animated in time. They plot one thing against another. You can run them for however long there's been records, which is over a century in a lot of cases. And you'll also see that the bubbles can all uh, all represent the actual sizes of the country, the population usually. It's terrific fun. Okay. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the other fun thing you can do when you're not listening to me droning on is you can look at the pictures of the tests that were done in the 60s and 70s and 80s on the safety of the containers that they move radioactive waste around the country on, and also the concrete that they build the reactors from. And there's a wonderful clip of a, an F4 Phantom on a rocket sled tied to the ground being flown <laughs> on a track into a lump of concrete 
a section of concrete which is equivalent to the walls of the reactor they're going to build. And I've never seen anything mm. quite like that. It, it's it's oh. it's amazing. And you, you'll probably think, God, how does that happen? The plane disappears. All that is left is the wingtips. It's doing okay. 500 miles an hour. And the bit of concrete just goes, huh. which is what it's designed to do. And the plane is literally vaporized. Wow. There's nothing left okay. apart from the wingtips that went either side. You think, how did you do that? Huh. So the answer about immovable objects is that they win. Okay. All right. <laughs> and there's another one. I'm trying to remember what the name of it is, but it's very easy to find. There was a test done. It's called Operation, whatever it was called, Operation Big Bang or something like that. And they put one of the transport class that we use in the UK, done the same thing in America, probably with a tow missile for all I know. But they put this thing across a railroad track, up a siding, and they bought an old diesel loco with about four carriages attached to it down the track at 100 miles an hour and ran it into it. And okay. the train is absolutely, this, this is the diesel engine that hits it first, absolutely destroyed. And, and the, the container that they carry the waste in had paint scratches. Really? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and this is, this is a you know, big diesel engine at 100 miles an hour. That's a lot of inertia going yeah. straight yeah. into the side of one of these flasks. They really are, they're not, they're not messing about. It's over-engineered massively. And everything is inside that containment area. Okay. So, and, and in spite, because, 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 because it's so intense, it's so cheap. It's the cheap. It's still the cheapest energy available. And people say, "Oh, it's so expensive." No, it isn't. It's expensive to build, but once it's built, its fueling costs are next to nothing. Its maintenance costs are very small, and it will run for sixty years, twenty-four-seven, apart from scheduled maintenance. Mostly, mm -hmm. um, okay. every now and again, there's a problem with a leak or something. But okay, they inspect it regularly. It's usually in the steam circuits or something like that you were asking me about other sorts of technology and i'll go straight on to it now because i've still wanted to say that the um, there are some very interesting technologies around there's one which involves no water cooling required um, which is helium cooled yeah. and it's called triso fuel if you go and look it up t-r-i-s-o and basically it's a ceramic golf ball with a bit of uranium 235 in the middle and you just it's called pebble bed reactor and you just load these things in the top from the top and you take the old ones out the bottom and you pump hydrogen sorry helium around at 800 degrees and they can use those in they're using those as replacement boilers for supercritical coal reactors in china okay so they're literally taking out the same right we'll take out the supercritical coal boiler or jump that, or sell it to Korea or North Korea or whatever you do with these things. You know, they need it. They haven't got any energy at all. And just plug in the nuclear one. And that can use the high temperature steam circuit because, uh, sorry, the, the helium gas can be cooled by the high temperature cooling, secondary cooling mm -hmm. that the coal fired. Thing before had and they can use the same generator so they're just going from coal that's their one of their plans to go from supercritical coal fires to nuclear 
So apart from red tape, how long do you think that would take? If you threw out red tape and just wanted to physically get that done, could you do that I, in a couple of couple of years there? You know what? It just depends. There's a, you have a very able and knowledgeable senator called Lamar Alexander okay. in America, Tennessee. He's probably Republican Tennessee. And he wrote a thing called Going to War in Sailboats, which was about the issue of, you know, wind farms and renewable energy in general. Lamar Alexander said we could do what we need to do to rejuvenate our energy supply, make it more resilient, et cetera, et cetera. We need a Manhattan project. Mm -hmm. We actually need, and this is what we need in this country as well now, because we've been so badly, they so badly misengineered, under-engineered our energy supply that we're now vulnerable to anything that happens. And what you actually need is to declare an emergency. So just wanted to, again, explain about nuclear quickly. The, the cost of nuclear on the lifetime cost of energy, it's called LCOE, is still the lowest of anything. Because it lasts for 60 years, it uses the lowest natural resources in terms of steel, concrete and everything else and land to build for the amount of energy that it produces and it, its cost of maintenance is very very low the fuel cost is fuel cost is low it's even if we had to fish it out the sea at 200 dollars a pound it's, it's nothing and you don't have to have all the infrastructure connect all you have to have coming into it is wires to take the electricity out because the uranium is such a small amount it just turns up on a truck once every year or so whatever the refueling regime is and, and it can't help but be cheapest because the source that you're using is a million times more intense than the coal or the gas. Okay. And a lot more intense than that, than the daft, weak, intermittent energy sources that renewable energy has to depend on. So the only way, somebody wrote a wonderful article on this, a Scottish academic, and it was called, this is no time to, to give up on energy intensity. And it just isn't. Yeah, and to just close the point, in the future, we can run nuclear for as long as we like. And when, and it's not going to happen, peak, peak oil hasn't happened yet, peak gas hasn't happened yet. Every time they think we're running out, the idiot Malthusians, somebody goes and digs another hole and finds some more. You know, it, it, there's an awful lot of planet left to look at. That There's probably not as, you know, it's not as easy as it was, but we, we're going to keep going for another century probably with fuel. But it will be consumed at an increasing rate. There's all these people who have, are becoming developed in Asia. There's going to be, what, there's 2 billion probably developed at the moment. We're going to have 11 billion before the birth rate, before the whole thing goes, because when everybody's developed, we won't have so many people. Yes. Literally won't be 11 billion anymore. At some point, we will have to say, right, liquid fuels, oil is really, you know, we really, really, really are. <laughs> we drilled a hole in the bottom of a volcano or whatever, you know, the nonsense they've done. It's now getting really expensive and, and, and we need liquid fuels to fight wars, fly airplanes and one or two other things. That mm -hmm. So it's reserved occupation type status, if you like, a reserved use. Mm -hmm. But we will, we will now have to have EVs, electric cars in Sydney. In a city for short haul work, that's kind of okay. I've done the sums. It's all. So, so what? But what can you do with energy? This is what people have no imagination at all. People can solve all technology, te 
tech problems with, te with technology, all the problems with technology. Mm -hmm. One of the many things we can do is if we've got lots of really cheap nuclear power, which we will when we're building hundreds and hundreds of nuclear power stations, they start cookie cuttering them. They come down by a factor of 10, mm -hmm. something like that. With coal-fired power did, literally got cheaper by a factor of 10 over the time they've built the, the technology. Mm -hmm. Sorry, so you, you've got your... Uh, the, the nuclear is coming in, you've got more and more. So it's becoming more exactly what you want. This is the prosperous future. You've got more and more cheap energy. And what can you do with energy? You can put things back together chemically. So you, you can synthesize liquid fuels even. You can synthesize plastics. You can synthesize ethylene to make plastics that you need. So things that aren't sustainable doesn't really mean anything because, in fact, you can... You, you are God. Humans are becoming go the gods that they used to fear. You can actually create these things using energy. So we're never ever going to run out of energy. The, the human race will be fried fried off the planet by the sun before then. But uh, or, or probably for some other. We've got an ice age coming in a few thousand years. What, where I am sitting will be at the tongue tongue of a glacier. Mm -hmm. The Canadians will be all down in Mexico, you know, it's, it's not, you'll have Laurentide 2.0 <laughs> ice sheet carving out the Great Lakes again. So we're all going to have to move, um, which is rather interesting when you have a, a nation state set up. So you're going to need some sort of world government in a few thousand years time. Otherwise, there's going to be just a nuclear war while everybody decides who it is who owns. The, the famous Indian sketch of is it land mine. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen it? I think I have not seen that one. Land mine. I don't know. Guys marching up to this area of woodlands or something, and the Indian appears. You know, he's proper. What's the word? Joke Indian, movie Indian. Okay. Land mine. And they say, no, no, chap, you don't understand. You know, we've got muskets. <laughs> And mine, he says. No, no, we're sorry, out of the way. They push him out of the way. They go march on freezes. The guy with the, the Indian, no, landmine. And he wanders off. And the next thing you see is one of these guys out the front. There's a big explosion. He goes right up in the air. I have not seen that. Okay. And on the landmine. <laughs> I love that one. Because it's, because it's not very likely to happen. So, anyway. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, so nuclear is the only future long term. It's just a question of when it's not yet. And, and there will, we will go through a, a phase of reserve use of liquid fuels. Just so I understand, you do see us sometime in the future using nuclear power to make liquid fuels to run our even cars and airplanes, right? Some sort no. of new type or no, no? Airplanes, yes. Cars, no. Uh, cars, no. Well, be, be, because it's it's I've done the sums. It's hugely expensive. It, it, okay. Just working out the cost of energy you, it requires to make the liquid fuel. Okay. It's, it's about I don't know twice the cost to run a, an electric vehicle properly when you take the taxes and the subsidies away. Okay. It's about I forget now. I did the sums. It's 50, between fifty and a hundred percent more in energy costs to run an EV. But it's five times more expensive to make liquid fuel with a nuclear okay. reactor. That at current costs £55 per megawatt hour that we have in the UK. Just round, round numbers. So it's a lot more expensive to synthesize liquid fuel than it is to charge up a battery. 
What kind of hopes do you have for the future of energy density in batteries? Do you think we'll have magical batteries far in the future that will be 100 times as dense, or are we already up to the or diminishing so returns? The, yeah. the problem is that storing charge is a very resource-intensive thing. Yeah. Yeah. You need a lot of material, and, and the, the, the smallest amount that you can use seems to be lithium-ion batteries at the moment. You'd have to and, and the cost of storing it. I don't know how you would store it. I mean, you could store it by, well, let's, let's just think what we're talking about. You could store energy by using your nuclear reactor to make petrol or, or actually methanol is probably better and it's safer, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's not as energy intense. So that is a way of storing it, but it's not a very efficient way okay. of, of storing it. Okay, so you, yes, you can man, you can reverse any chemical well, any chemical process, are they all reversible? Probably. <laughs> I'm not okay. sure. All right. I'm not a chemist. I'm, okay. I'm more a physicist than I am a chemist. It's a good question you asked there. What you should always do is use the best energy that you have currently available, you know, and then the yep. next best, and then this is portfolio yes. management, to do the particular application that you have. Now, for a vehicle, that is converting intense liquid fuel into energy at the point of use. Mm -hmm. And that's, it, it can be contained in quite a small tank because it's very intense. Having a great big half ton battery that you charge up from electricity that probably has been created by burning gas or coal at a power station yes. doesn't make any sense at all. Electrification in that way doesn't make any sense at all because it's better done just by creating the energy from a liquid fuel when you need it. Yes. Especially when you do it with a 10,000 horsepower funny car that lasts 15 seconds before they have to rebuild the engine. I love those. <laughs> okay. Totally mental. So, the, uh, and that's equally true of things like the heat pump nonsense that we're hearing we say oh we must electrify everything this is what the chattering class is you know the john kerry's of this world say oh, yes oh we can use electric well yeah well where does electricity come from john <laughs> it comes from the power station right mm -hmm. um and, and now run this by me again it costs fifteen thousand pounds for a heat pump and three thousand pounds for a thousand pounds for a gas boiler right gas burns with a 90 percent plus efficiency in a condensing boiler so by far the best way to heat, and it's cheap to make a boiler to do it. So why would you do it any other way while you've still got gas? Oh, because we're saving the planet. Get lost. <laughs> <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid people. And, and instead of that, they want you to get in this huge piece of heat pump, heat pump stuff mm -hmm. that costs 15 grand in England, and maybe 10 if you're lucky, and actually... If it's an air source pump, have you done this with somebody else? No, no. Ah, if it's an air source heat pump, as distinct from a ground source heat pump, your coefficient of performance, you're going to be lucky if it's more than 200% effectively efficient. And because the temperature differences are quite small, your thermodynamic efficiency is very low, and you'll be lucky if you can get the water much above 40 degrees. Okay, yeah. So guess what? You have to have a whole new heating system put into your house as well. You have to have underfloor heating is the only thing that really works. Water-based underfloor yeah. heating. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, if you want to get it up to 50 degrees, then I think you have to have a, a ground-sourced heat pump. And that's even more expensive. 
And nobody will have the money to pay for this because the electricity they're paying for is already costing them three or four times as much. Because Very it really is a nonsense. Yeah. So the point here is you need to use the fuel that does the particular job best until you don't have any other choice than to change. So that's petrol or methanol or whatever. And this business of using bio bio energy, you know, ethanol or whatever, if, if you... There are various reasons why you might do that. If you haven't got any oil of your own, like Brazil, and you, you've got a lot of agricultural areas, you can create. But in the end, and the same goes for burning hydrogen and using it in a, in what, in a boiler. You can't do that. It doesn't work. I mean, you can burn hydrogen in the boiler, but how you would distribute it, it's incredibly leaky. It's the smallest molecule you can get. It's one proton, right, with an electron buzzing around it. It goes, goes straight through pipes. Okay. And it's incredibly explosive. It's, it, if you look at the actual intensity per gram energy, hydrogen's off, off the end. It's 14 compared to 4. Okay. okay. Mental. And that's why they use it to launch space shuttles, right? You just put hydrogen and water together. Sorry, sorry hydrogen and oxygen together, and it pushes a bloody great spaceship into the sky. Very energetic reaction. Um, so the problem with substitution... Is, is is that it's the same subsidy racket as all the other things. You generate hydrogen, which means you use more energy than you will get from burning the hydrogen to create it in the first place. Okay. So bonkers. And then, but that's well subsidized. So you do it because you can make money from it, right? It's, it's right. an unnatural act with energy, but that's... Uh, covered this before that's what you do mm. so how are you going to get it used how are you going to actually monetize that mm. as a fuel easy you use the gas infrastructure okay so you mix it with gas and this stuff that wasn't really much use on its own suddenly makes you a shed load of money because it's a, there's a lot of money going through a gas pipeline and you're getting the you're you're getting a sixth of it for your hydrogen at an inflated price because it's green it's a total ripoff and the same thing is happening with petrol. They're putting more and more ethanol in the petrol. Mm -hmm. But if you look at that energy intensity chart that you can find somewhere on, on the web, anybody can do this, just have a look at what the relative intensity of ethanol is to petrol. Are they, what they're using, they're using petrol as, as they're a parasite on the petrol host mm -hmm. to get the subsidy. So they get the subsidy for making the bioethanol the many poor car manufacturers have to make their engines run on this crap as well. So they keep being obsoleted by this, which is sort of like, it's not necessarily poor car manufacturers because it get, means people have to keep changing their cars. So we can't afford that in England like you can in America. Hmm. And, uh, uh, yeah, and, and, and the good petrol becomes the vehicle for yes. a subsidy racket mm -hmm. that is the ethanol. Duh. And it's a bad use of land. Yeah, bad, terrible use of food. I don't know what percent of the U.S. corn crop is burned as ethanol, but it's some big number. Yeah, yeah, it's bonkers. It's completely stupid. It, it's a driven by subsidy. It's an unnatural act with crops and with energy that is entirely created by government intervention. Mm -hmm. yeah. Bad law, in fact. And, and the people who profit from it are the rich elites, and the people who are made poorer are the ordinary citizen who is forced yes. to pay for it by law. Because mm -hmm. 
Oh, the other thing that happened in the UK, we've got a committee here run by a guy called um, John Gummer. And he has family firms that recommend things to people. A lot of these companies are privately held and, and they take advice as to what they should do next. Well, they get advice on what they should do next from the chairman of this committee, who then goes and tells the Commons what they should rec what they should legislate for. Right. No conflict of interest there. Amazing. <laughs> you, you can't make this stuff up. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. absolutely corrupt. And and I I'm still trying to find out whether malfeasance is is actually a legal offence in the United Kingdom. I don't know. Is okay. it? Is I mean. I, I got that from America. Americans use malfeasance a lot more as a word, you know, to talk about corrupt mm -hmm. laws which are yeah. made in the sure and certain knowledge that they're not good for the people they're being <laughs> imposed upon. And probably it, it, it's legalised crime. Yeah, yeah. Is what energy policy is. And it's run by the rich people to screw the poor people, basically. <laughs> and that's what's happened in the UK. And the whole of the Western, you know, this is the bottom line of all this, we don't need to do any of the things that they're imposing. What we should be doing is what I just said, which is we should be using the best fuel we have to do the particular application it's best suited for until it starts to run out. And then we need to find another way. And there are other ways, but they're not as good. So why would we start doing them before we've run out of the stuff that works best? Right, right. Oh, it's sorry, it's climate change. But um, there isn't any. Speaking That's of that... Speaking of that, yeah. I did want to ask this question about how we're hearing these stories that three quarters of the pubs might have to shut down because energy is so expensive in the UK. And a pint, pint of beer might cost $23 US maybe. I forget what the number is. But do you see any... It already. It Does depends it? what bar you go to in London. Uh, <laughs> it probably cost £23 for a cup of tea in the Ritz. Do you see any uh, way out of that in the short term anyway? Yeah, well, there's all sorts of contingency plans. Fortunately, the, the morons who run our country, and Alok Sharma was the last moron, who was the Minister of Energy, managed to blow up one of the power stations, mm -hmm. Ferry Bridge, and they've done it in Australia as well. Joe Nova does the best line on that. You know, oh. when you've got, have you seen Joe, have you had Joe on? I have not, but I'm trying to for next week, actually. Yeah. Oh, I, I yeah. saw her, I did actually see Joe do her talk to the GWPF in London. And she said, well, ladies and gentlemen, we, we, we've got this wonderful coal-fired power station and uh, it's fully depreciated. You know, it's 30 years old. It's churning out electricity at next to no cost. So what do we do? We blow it up. <laughs> Incredible. I shouldn't laugh. Shouldn't laugh. Amazing. Oh, she's great value. But that is exactly what they did here with Ferry Bridge. It may have been actually very badly contaminated and past its sell by date. I don't know. And the, the grounds, these old coal fired power stations, they're a great place to build a new power station okay. because there's not much use for anything else. You know, it's been handling coal for years, all sorts of toxic stuff. I'm, it's probably not a problem. Victorians would have thought, oh, get over yourself, you know. Okay. <laughs> Go and okay. dig it up. We'll send in, send in some, send in some bods to dig it up. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, the point here is. We've still got coal-fired power stations. They've been told the the last the prior idiot Hua Teng, he he actually wrote to the owners of the mothballed or shut down power stations and said, "Can you tell me how much it will cost to get these going again?" Okay. For this winter, so we've got that. We've got armies of diesel generators. The hospital, all the hospital generators 
the smell of diesel is the financial controller of our local one said to me you know when the generators are running the hospital smells of diesel oh, okay. so all of them are connected to the grid and they are paid to be backup so and, and especially for the solar farms because of course that's how they make solar farms work they have, they have loads of diesel generators on the farm that work when the soda isn't working. So all okay. of this stuff is going to be probably deployed depending on how bad a winter it is. Okay. There's nothing we can do. We need to get as much gas as we can. One of my suggestions was go and invade Oman. Alert from news. Oh. BBC news. I mean, we know them quite well. We wouldn't be nasty to them, but we should go and take over. So right, we're having all that gas now. You are okay. now a colony of the United Kingdom. <laughs> okay. um, that would work. But uh, apparently we're not supposed to do that anymore. You okay. should be very good at it. <laughs> you, you get the point. So I do. There's, there's a lot of gas-fired power stations. The question is, what is the mix going to be? And the worst thing we could possibly do is, is start trying to build, even justify building even more offshore power stations. Because, sorry, wind power. Yes, okay. Because the only reason we ever did that in the 1990s originally it was because we wouldn't be able to build nuclear fast enough okay. right, to replace mm -hmm. the fossil. So we'd better have this wind power so that we can restrict the use of gas and coal, limit the use of our North Sea gas and stuff. And, and then, of course, they got greedy. And they thought, oh, we're getting 200 300% subsidies for this. Why build nuclear? If we start having nuclear going, we'll lose this beano we're on mm -hmm. with wind. So nobody built any nuclear power stations. Yes. Yeah. It, and, and literally, it's it's all about greed, how much money they can make. And, and the other thing, of course, is that as with GM foods, nuclear power solves the problem of not having enough electricity, as GM food solves the problem of not having enough food yeah, yeah. and fertilizers. So both of those things are violently opposed by the well-funded activists because they solve the problem they're using, mm -hmm. okay. right? To, 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 to support other actions, support climate action and all the rest of it. Okay. So nuclear has always been the enemy because it's a cheap, excellent, mm. zero emission solution. It has always been the enemy to the renewable energy side of things. But that's, we know that and the government knows that now. Have you seen Liz Truss has been saying they're going to put nuclear on the same fast track as fracking? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So do you have some faith that Liz Truss is going to make things better? Well, her problem is that she there's a whole group of idiots in the Conservative Party who are more interested in their own fortunes than ours. Okay. Because they're invested in renewables who don't want that to happen. Okay. And she is listed on the WEF website, right? That makes me nervous. I know. Well, me. I don't know. Maybe true. May not be true. Probably okay. is true. But does it? Does it? What does it mean? Is the thing? Yeah. Okay. You should know your enemy. Yeah. There you go. Okay. I, I forgot to ask when we were. By the way, just just to be really clear now, Klaus Schwab is your enemy. <laughs> I agree with that. I was going to ask the uh, in China, are they going whole hog into wind and solar? No. Or are they? Okay. Coal. Coal. Yeah. All right. So. The, they do have a mix. They obviously had to have a mix because one of the many things they did, I don't know, but I would bet, and I'd have to check it, okay, 
I would bet they exported a shed load more wind farms and solar panels to the Western developed nations than they are using themselves. It's more like a demo setup, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah, yeah. I told them we were going to go renewable. <laughs> I think you're right. I do think you're right. No, you're not stupid. The, the, the point I always make on this is our politicians are, as far as technology is concerned, absolute ignoramuses. And, and they just believe what they're told because they've got no education to understand it. Mm -hmm. So how do they make any judgments? And this is what Carl Sagan said in that short yes. talking before yes. he died. Mm -hmm. We're run by people who aren't interested in the truth as far as what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. because they want to be able to debate everything and argue and win about you can't do that with science there is only one there's loads of beliefs there's only one truth mm -hmm. so, right now chinese know what that truth is because half of their politburo have got engineering uh, degrees mm -hmm. or, or numerate yeah. degrees at least they science mathematics and and then they go off and do the you know whatever it is president z memorial phd in how to be a good communist but they they don't get to that stage unless they've gone through a highly numerous right. degree mostly. Okay. So they really, really know what works and what doesn't work. And they are capable of understanding that and saying, no, that's rubbish. <laughs> yeah, we better do some of that to please the UN. You know. But who was it who gave Maurice Strong his, his what's the word? Sanctuary. With China, was, right? Right, yeah, when he was caught with a million dollars of relief, you know, in relief money sticking to his fingers. Uh, of course they did, because it was Marxism, basically, that, that was... It, I don't understand elite Marxism, apart from the Malthusian nonsense no. that, that drives people like the Rockefellers and the Gettys and the rest of them. It just, it's just yeah. the kids are wealthy people who could never do it again on their own. Right. Trying to protect their position of power and wealth against mm -hmm. the risingly prosperous. How do you how do you deal with that? A risingly prosperous, independent mass of people. Well, the answer is you make them less prosperous <laughs> by limiting their China. energy supply. Yeah. Dead simple. Yeah. Oh, carbon dioxide causes energy, and and that was the beauty of Strong's invention, because he just said, well, if we can link this carbon dioxide stuff to energy use sorry it's, it, it is energy use yes it, yeah. when, mm -hmm. most of the energy creation in the world involves producing carbon dioxide if we can blame carbon dioxide for climate change and force people in the west to therefore reduce it on that basis we're away to the races all we've got to do is to not have a problem that we're going to make them scared of that they can check and it didn't work for limits to growth because people could see that as the population rose the supplies mm -hmm. and the prices went to, went up and down respectively you got more stuff for less money and with the population growth everybody realized what i've explained earlier about you just get the bubble of four of extra kids who survive going through and then mm -hmm. it drops back the birth rates already dropped so when they die off it will start to reduce again so neither of those things quite self-evidently to people they could look out the window and see what the weather was doing right they didn't need the met office to tell them the wrong forecast and have to believe it mm -hmm. so they said oh well no no what we can say is that what these people are doing producing this carbon dioxide is killing off these precious reserves of nature in places where they can't ever see them because right. they're not going to go there 
and and there's so few people go there and a lot of those are government employees we can control the narrative so the great barrier reef is being destroyed the polar bears are all dying uh -huh. the the ice in greenland is melting every summer yeah. surprise surprise <laughs> yes there is some but it's it's all uh, it, it's all a lie everybody yeah. knows yeah. that anybody who goes and reads the statistics or reads susan crockford's report mm -hmm. knows very nicely the polar bear populations have doubled since they started, since records began. Um, <laughs> yeah. The GBR is in its best state of coral mm -hmm. yes. since records began. Yeah. And yeah. the Greenland ice has actually been accumulating for the last few years. And it yeah. hasn't disappeared like Al Gore promised. Mm -hmm. So it's just a crop, all of it. And, and it's been done to depress the West. Mm -hmm. Yeah, economic. so... As Patrick Moore says, it's all about fake invisible catastrophes, his book. I think that's a great point that he makes. But one thing that's making me happy is that that you have gone viral and you got uh, close to 600,000 views, I think, on that one clip from Talk TV and your amount of followers is up on Twitter. I, I, I'm really happy that you're going viral. That must be fun for you, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, I mean, until somebody starts attacking the house or something like that, yeah, I'm okay. still, I'm, well, fortunately, we're not armed here. Okay. All right. He, uh, John Christie used. He says I spoke to him the other day, and he said, "Oh, we patched those up." He did. He used to delight in showing people who went to visit him at the University of Huntsville the bullet holes in the wall of his. <laughs> yeah, I do remember hearing about that. Yeah. yeah got, they got shot up. Well, you know that's America, but it's different there. <laughs> we'll see. With the government we've got, but I I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. I think. There's enough people with their heads above the parapet now saying this this nonsense has got to stop. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it hasn't, and you know we 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 have to do serious things, and so does America. You know you need somebody. Trump did the right thing, leaving the Paris Accord. Yes, yeah. We've got to stop yeah. taking. I mean, why are we taking advice about what to do with our energy supply? from the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change, because right. they make it up and, mm -hmm. and, and, and they have a political agenda. Even their own science, I don't know if you've had Steve Coonan on, but no, not yet. the guy who was, he was the environmental advisor to Obama. Obama, yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, one of the many things, very able man, one of the many things he's done is read all the science reports that are in the IPCC AR5 and AR6. And one of the key points he makes is, I've read those, and he point, he puts stuff up that, that he's particular, are particularly important. And one of the most important things is that none of the recommendations, pretty much, that are made in the IPCC's recommendations to poly, policymakers, mm -hmm. which is what the countries who wrote signed up to the Rio 92 Accord are supposed to make their policies based on none of those policy recommend political recommendations pretty much are supported by the science in the scientific reports in fact i i knew that that happened in the uk as regards other laws that, that have mm. been made because the politicians come up and say oh we've got this report you know on whatever it is burning waste or something yeah. like that okay and and that therefore justifies these laws and these subsidies and you say well does it yeah, because yeah. physicists are a bit like that. Mm -hmm. and, and the answer is no, it doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> say that at all. 
And that's exactly the same with the UNIPCC. Yes. So we yeah. just need that. And we should set up our own committees. We should have energy energy infrastructure, should have political objectives. It should be sustainable in the long term. It should provide cheap, plentiful energy with minimum environmental damage. And obviously, all of those things are good. But that should be decided by engineers. Yes. What, you know, like I was saying about using the best energy to do the particular mm -hmm. application, that's an engineer's job. It's not a politician's job. In our case, it was decided by a, a girl with an English literature degree yes. who was the Friends of the Earth activist. Brienne, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not a clue. For, for, for a guy who was running a new department, who's another arts graduate who does a PPE degree or something, no clue, called Ed Miliband. Yes. Another idiot. I mean, it's all, politi all politics, all belief, and all wrong. <laughs> yeah, again, there's that famous picture of Ed Miliband standing there applauding while uh, Greta's standing right next to him. It's, uh, it's amazing, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, she knows everything. <laughs> yeah, about climate and energy, I guess. So I'm about ready to wrap up here, I think. Do you have uh, any last messages you'd like to send <laughs> out to our Any our last viewers? words? For, for this time, I'm sure we can do this again. But yeah, for, for this round, do you have anything more that you'd like to, uh, like to say? I don't know. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm Captain Man. I started yes. to post some, I thought, it's, I'm, I'm not a social media sort of person. You know, I just read other people's tweets and sort of replied to the ones that I thought were completely bonkers. Yeah. Uh, but if anybody wants to, I will start trying to post post sort of nuggets of information there. If you if you follow what I mean, you know, mm -hmm. this then that Twitter size, Twitter 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 length technology mm -hmm. uh, with, with maybe a graph or possibly a paper reference, but to say this is the case here, you know, because that end of yeah. Or, or I've, done, I've just posted one today, which is a the whole thing in 90 seconds. Okay, I didn't see that one. I follow you on Twitter, and there's a lot of good stuff out there, so I encourage other people to do that. Okay. You look today, you'll find my flash talk, and it was when we somebody was trying to limit our... They were trying to say, oh, we'll let these chaps on, but we'll limit what time they can have. So they were we were told we could put up a poster display while everybody else was getting 45 minutes to present their stuff. We could put up a poster display and we were allowed a one-minute flash talk. So I, I, I cheated and took 90 seconds. Okay. I included the key slides I wanted to and I just talked over them. That's all nice. it is. It's PowerPoint with me talking to the slides as they flick through. And it's on Vimeo. I've been... I've, turned it into a video and that's about the limit of my technological abilities i'm afraid but it does it it does actually raise all the issues and, and make the conclusions in 90 seconds excellent yeah i just found that tweet and i just retweeted it and then i'll put a link in the show notes here too but yeah that's the way to go those 90 second clips are fabulous yeah and i can i i i've realized that you know it's you I said this a long time ago when, when I was sort of back in my GWPF days, you can't go on explaining things to people forever. Yes. You've just yeah. got to tell them what, what the reality is. So, well, you can trust me or not trust me. I'm, I'm an engineer and I've got facts. So mm -hmm. the, that, then this, or this, then that, right? Mm -hmm. Cause and yes. effect. I'll put the data down there and I'll just wait for the, 
<laughs> what you get then, of course, is the fact checkers who are sub who are paid by the same people who are the yeah, activists exactly. who come along and say, yeah. "Oh, that's not right," and they come up with complete rubbish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I, what I haven't realised was that the same tropes are being repeated. They say, "Oh, GIST two is a terrible set of data. You know, it's unreliable and it's fake." But it's not fake. It's pulled down from Richard Alley's paper, and then they say, "Oh, the data," and they all say the same wrong thing. Mm-hmm. They say the data ends in 1855 or 1854 or whatever it is. No, it doesn't. If they'd ever downloaded the data, they'd, they'd yeah. know it ends 94 years before present, 95 years before present, okay. and the paper was done in 2000, mm-hmm. so it's 1905. So they've no idea what they're talking yeah. about. They're just mm-hmm. making it up. And yeah. and so I'm okay with that because you know, as long as I can, as long as I know that what I'm saying is is what are the recorded facts and i'm drawing i hope a logical conclusion from it which you can disagree with if you don't like it and if you can tell me why you disagree with it and, and i can debate that with you then i'm happy they can attack all they like because there's only one truth yes yep yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really happy in this new internet world that you can make your own videos and people can watch directly the words coming out of your mouth i don't know how you would have done this a hundred years ago It'd be pretty hard to get your message out then, but I, I'm encouraged. Well, you, do, you, know, you do pamphlets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They used to pamphlet, right? And that was the thing. And what was his name? Who was it? Who stuck his, it's a Protestant guy who stuck his declaration on the door of the church. Martin Luther. Luther. Martin Luther. That's right? the one. That's the one. Yeah, yeah there you go. <laughs> I need a, I had half a mind to go and do that at one point and go and nail it on the, the trouble is you probably end up with lead poisoning (laughs) (laughs) probably okay i think this is very good i think we'll wrap up for now and but thank you very much brian cat and i hope to have you back again if you have some more time in the future this is really fun for me i appreciate it (laughs) well i'm glad you liked it i enjoyed it too (laughs) all right thank you see you next time bye all right